Welcome to the Legacy and Lifestyle Show, where you'll learn how to live the life you want today while planning for the legacy you want to leave tomorrow. And I'm your host, George Palm, entrepreneur, financial advisor, fitness enthusiast, and foodie. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to the seventh episode of the Legacy and Lifestyle Show. Really appreciate everybody continuing to listen. And I promise uh, after this episode, we're going to start having some other guests on the show. You got to be tired of hearing me talk. <laughs> um, but no, it'll just make it more engaging. So definitely looking forward to having some guests on. I already have a pretty big list of folks that I want to reach out to. I just wanted to make sure that we had a pretty good foundation laid for the show before we start inviting guests to speak on it. A um, couple things I want to talk about before we get started. First and foremost, thanks to everyone who came out to our event this past Tuesday. Uh, myself and Ryan Jarrell hosted a, an event entitled Fashion Sense, where we help people unlock their fashion and financial potential. It was a great time. Everybody looked great, had some great dialogue, some great food, great people, and a great space. Uh, so, extremely extremely pleased with the turnout and we we hope that everybody had a great time that came and uh, as we're finalizing the revenue numbers for september uh, we asked that anybody who maybe was on the fence about becoming a client or buying a learning module go ahead and do it Um, because as you know as i said on the last podcast we are donating a portion of this month's revenue um, to those affected by the recent storms that have hit Um, and we just want to make sure that we can do our part so uh, thanks for all those who came on board this month uh, you're effectively making a contribution just by making an, making an investment in yourself. So uh, now that we got the house cleaning stuff out of the way, today's podcast topic will probably be the most in depth um, from a financial perspective because typically you know you guys know I try to be more abstract with my advice on these. Uh, but today I really wanted to dive in on this one. It's, it's one that I've had casual conversations about with friends and family and you always get different responses from different people. And so this is my opinion. And granted, you know, what I'm saying is rooted in fact, you know, it may not be uh, applicable to everyone, but I'm certainly going to share with you my perspective. And I hope that you take something away from this that will be beneficial for how you look at look at real estate investing going forward. So spoiler alert, uh, this episode is about real estate and why your home is not a good investment. Okay, so on today's podcast, we're going to talk about real estate, as I just mentioned, and why buying a single family home is not a good investment. Now, before we get into this, I want to talk a little bit about what I like to call the opportunity mobility matrix. I believe there's a direct correlation between your ability to capitalize on opportunities related to success and wealth that is tied to your level of mobility in life. The more mobile you are, the more opportunities you can take advantage of. The less mobile you are, the more likely you are to be stuck with what you got. This is the point where it challenges the very essence of what we consider to be the American dream. In my first book that I'm currently writing that will be released uh, probably mid-next year, um, this is one of the most important things that I address in my book as it relates to the opportunity mobility matrix, right? In the place you call home, the one thing that you have been told all your life is a pillar or a cornerstone of wealth is probably that very thing that is holding you back and it is not an investment right so if you are aspiring to live in a home or currently live in one this may not be what you want to hear um if it is your desire to stay oblivious to the facts that i'm about to lay out this might be where you want to stop listening 
If you decide to keep listening, however, um, good. That means that you're committed to really transforming um, your life, even at the expense of your emotional attachment to the idea, or I should say the old idea of what the American dream is. So let's talk a little bit about why your home is not an investment and how it is the core of the opportunity mobility matrix that I keep talking about. If you are considering your home to be an investment, it's a bad investment at the very least. When considering if something is an investment, there are a few fundamental factors you must include. One, you must factor everything you put into the investment to be able to determine the return on that investment, right? Everything you put into it is a factor, right? I think we all can agree on that. Two, to protect against risk, an investment should be well diversified, right? And in layman's terms, don't put all your eggs in one basket. We all have heard that age-old cliche, and I think we all can agree with that. Three, you must factor in the potential upside and downside to decide if the investment is right for you. Now, before we really get into this, I'm not saying that homeownership is a bad deal for everyone, right? For some people, homeownership you know, based upon their financial well-being could be a suitable could be suitable for them. Right. Um, it could be a great place to establish a sense of community, make something of your own, create memories, build lasting relationships, all that good stuff. Right. And if you're lucky enough to time things out the right way, you can sell your home and receive a nice size check from the equity that has gained in your house during the duration of the time that you stayed there. All of which may sound very appealing. Oftentimes, though, we never really hear many people talking about the downside of owning a home. I'm a firm believer that the average, now the emphasis here is on average, the average American, I'm a firm believer that the average American should not be buying a home and it's a bad idea, right? Now, if you have no ambitions of breaking out of the middle class and you feel pretty good about where you are today, maybe buying a home is right for you. However, real estate investing, real estate investing is very different from buying a single family residence. I will give you all some details as to what actual real estate investing is later on in the podcast, but your primary home is simply not that, folks. It just isn't. So, so you don't think I'm just hurling around my opinion. Let's talk some numbers, okay? Let's talk some cold hard facts because men lie, women lie, numbers don't, okay? Let's look at an example. Let's say that a 30-year fixed rate FHA loan on a $250,000 mortgage with 3.5% down. Assuming a 4% annual interest rate, that's $6,000 per year in taxes, insurance, and PMI. This, this is realistically probably the most common scenario you will find in today's homeownership. I'll actually be generous and I'll, and I'll exclude HOA dues from this analysis. Now, your monthly payment is about $1,657, so $1,657 in this example. And like I said, that's factoring in PMI, taxes, and insurance, and all that good stuff, right? The average person keeps their house for about 10 years, but to keep things simple and make the argument more favorable for those who say, well, one day I'm going to have a house that I don't have to make a payment on because I paid it off, we'll assume that you keep it for the full 30 years, right? And that gives you more time for this thing to really grow, and it really you know, uh, will lend more credibility to your argument. So we'll go with the full 30-year scenario and see how that plays out, right? right? By my estimation, you'll turn around and sell your home for about $455,302, right? And you originally purchased it for two fifty. dollars So that's a whopping... $205,000 check that you're going to receive if you decided to sell your home. That's a come up, right? 
Well, let's, let's see. Let's see how that breaks down. Again, the initial value of your home was $250,000, okay? $250,000. Your down payment, right? We said, what, 3.5%. So you're putting down $8,750, which means you have total principal payments of $241,250, right? Less the down payment. That means interest paid over the time period is $173,385. Taxes, insurance, and PMI would equate to $181,800. Okay? Now, remember, the sale price of your home was $455,302. The money spent in 30 years. Now, remember, this is an investment. So we got to factor in everything that we put into it to determine our return on this investment, right? So money spent in 30 years, which is going to include your down payment, is $605,185. So over 600 grand you paid over the course of that 30 years for that $250,000 house. But you're selling it for 455. So you're coming up, right? Well, you don't got to be a wizard math to see that that just don't add up, right? So your profit or loss, we should say in this example, before additional expenses is $149,000 roughly. A negative $149,000, right? That that you've lost when we do the math that way. Now, most people feel like they came up, right? Because at that at the time of sale, they're going to get that big check. But over all these years, if you look at everything that you put into it versus what you got out of it, you didn't win. Now, let's look at the additional cost, right? Now, it's a reasonable assumption to say that maintenance costs in your home are going to be around 1% a year, okay? Now, granted, in the early years, if you have a new construction you know, you might not have much maintenance, but there might be, you know, some years we got to fix the roof or the water heater. So we'll just kind of average it out at 1% a year. That's going to be, be about $75,000 over the life of that property, right? The 30 years that you, that you keep. Then if you're selling, right, you're probably going to hire a realtor, right? And so then you're going to have 3% uh, commissions on the buy side and 3% commissions on the sell side, right? And as the seller, you have to pay both. So you have to pay the total 6%, right? So that's another $34,318, right? Now, when you factor in those two expenses to the total paid or total spent, I should say, in this 30-year period, now factoring in the cost of the sale and the maintenance, right? You're looking at a net loss of $259,000. 259000 folks, that is more than you paid for the house in the first place. So you lost more money than you paid for the house 30 years ago, right? And nobody wants to look at it that way, but that's the math, folks. You can't consider something an investment and then exclude all of the mortgage payments. You can't consider something an investment and exclude all the maintenance payments. You can't consider something an investment and exclude anything that you put into it. But oftentimes, we always just think about that little nice check that we get if we just so happen to sell at the right time. Not to mention, that little analogy or little breakdown that I just did is assuming that you sell the house when the market is performing at a good time and all the stars are aligned. It could be worse than that. 
What if you need or want to sell the house when the market isn't performing as well or your home value has dropped? It gets uglier or worse. What if you sell and you still have a mortgage on the place and the value of your home is less than what you owe on the property? Then you have to write a check to the bank, right? What if you need to move to capitalize on another opportunity? Again, that opportunity mobility matrix. What if you need to move to capitalize on another opportunity, but now you can't sell your house and certainly you can't afford two mortgages? What are you going to do? Maybe you'll find a tenant. But remember, in this scenario, the market is down. Right. So if you find a tenant, you'll have a hard time trying to rent it out for much more than what your mortgage is. At best, maybe you'll break even. You might even have to rent it out for less just to stop the bleeding because they can smell your desperation. Right. Now, of course, that's a worst case scenario. But any prudent investor would factor that in and make sure that they have the risk tolerance to be able to withstand that circumstance or that reality if it were to occur. Even if we looked at the best case scenario, right? you're still at a loss, right? Even if you sell when the market's doing well. And that's just the reality of the situation. It's just the math. You got to stop, look, stop looking at things on a micro level and say, well, hey, I got this nice check when I sold my house. Well, look at it in totality and see what your net gain really was. And as you can see, there's no gain at all. Now, even if you, you know, were in a scenario where you came out ahead, right? After selling your house, at the peak of the market, before any major repairs, and you purchased it at a great price, right? You bought low and you sold high. How many people have you ever met that sell their house, make a big profit, quote unquote, we'll use that term profit loosely, and then go and move into another smaller, more affordable house? No one. They always move into the next biggest, better, more expensive house the next time around and put all that money right back into the house. The point is, over the last 100 years, average annual increase in home prices only increased 1% adjusted for inflation, which is not what I would call a good investment by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, so now that we've gotten the math out of the way, what is a home, right? And if it's not an investment, is it better than renting, right? Because we always hear, don't throw your money away with renting, right? And I guess that depends on how you look at it. As I previously stated, a home is a place to make your own. A place where you can build a sense of community, a sense of pride, and all that good stuff. A place where you can put down your roots, settle in, and raise a family. All things remaining constant, you'll probably get more bang for your buck versus renting an apartment as it relates to space. But it also assumes that you're probably renting in the heart of the city of a major metropolitan versus owning on the outskirts of the suburbs. However, when thinking about mobility and its positive correlation on your ability to build wealth by seizing opportunities, a home can be one of the biggest barriers to that. Part of what I just stated previously, right? Now you're emotionally attached to the home, the neighborhood, and the sense of community. You don't want to move. And your friends, right? So now you stay stuck in a place because of the perceived emotional attachment to the American dream when in all actuality you're stuck in limiting yourself from taking advantage of opportunities wherever they may be. Not to mention, if you get unlucky and want or need to sell at a time when the market is not performing so well, you choose to stay stuck because you can't afford to take the hit, right? You ever see a certain side of town that was seemingly booming 15 years ago or everyone said that this is going to be the next best thing, right? But now what about that side of town? It's forgotten about, less than stellar, no one's talking about it, no one cares. Closed down shopping centers, stagnant growth, nothing new coming to the area, right? 
of course, they're going to tell you that it's a good place to move and that it's booming. No one can predict that. Yeah, they might have some projects on the horizon, but no one can predict what is going to happen in an area 10 to 15 years from now. There's so many variables that we don't have control over that determine that ultimately determine what's going to happen. Right. The average American or really anyone for that matter cannot predict the success of a certain geographical area of a city and what it's slated to do. Right. It's just that just impossible. There's too many factors we can't control. Right. They were told that the area was going to boom over the next several years, but lo and behold, things did not quite go according to plan, and you're stuck in a house in an area of town that's not too desirable anymore. How's that property value looking now? Ah, <laughs> oh, man. But you got to live somewhere, right? You might as well own. You don't want to throw money away written. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you guys follow Grant Cardone or know who he is, but he, that dude is hilarious, and he put it perfectly, right? He said, you also got to eat for the next 30 years, but you're not going to prepay your groceries for the next 30 years, right? Right? I mean, just think about how dumb that would sound. I'm going to prepay for my groceries for the next 30 years because I got to eat. Well, you got to eat. That's stupid. doesn't make any sense, right? There's too much that can happen between now and then. Your taste could change. More health information could come out about certain foods, right? Like what the health? Like imagine if you bought all this meat back in 1995 or prepaid for all this meat back in 1995. And then you started to learn how unhealthy meat was for you. But it is what it is now. Yeah, you, you own all this meat. What are you going to do with it, right? Um, and that's and it sound, as stupid as that sounds, right? When you really start to think about homeownership and, and, and assuming that you're going to be able to predict how home values are going to go in a certain area, uh, it's the same exact thing, right? I, and this is coming from someone who owned a home less than two months ago and just sold it. Just sold it, right? And I knew somebody else in the same city who lived on another side of town. Their home value was stagnant for the past 15 years, right? Past 15 years. I just happened to, to get lucky. I don't consider myself smart. We got lucky. We were on a nice, what's considered a nice side of town. There was inflated demand. So um, our value went up. But the person who bought their house across town, they were told the same thing. This is a great area. Values are going to go up. Didn't happen, right? And that's what I want you to want you to realize. No one can predict how things are going to go. What's the moral of the story, right? Things change. Give yourself the mobility to do the same until you really know what you want in life and the area you're currently in is in alignment with helping you achieve that. Never root yourself to any one thing when you are still at a place of uncertainty. If you're living check to check, then by all accounts, you are still uncertain about your life at this point. And I'm not saying that money is the only indicator that means you have life figured out. But one would assume you are or should be open to new opportunities if your current one isn't providing you with the financial security that you need or the prosperity that you desire. In order to be open to new opportunities, you need to be mobile. And renting gives you that mobility to adapt to these types of realities until you get to a point where you're more well-established. With the single-family home game, it really is all predicated upon love. Trying to get into the up-and-coming area at a low price point before it takes off. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Either way, you have to live with the result. If you're going to buy a home, it should be at a point in life where you're pretty well-established and you meet the criteria of someone who can afford a home. Until then, you need to remain mobile and agile and be able to seize opportunities to get your life where you want it to be.
right? Don't assume that, oh, I could buy a house and you know, if I need to move, I can just get out of it easily. Maybe, maybe you can, maybe you can't. That's a lofty assumption because you don't know what's going to be going on in the world when you want to sell or when that opportunity is going to arise. Market might be booming now. Will it be booming next year, next month? Who knows? Now, if you're still not sold on just how dangerous home ownership can be for the wrong person, this should really clear, clear things up for you, right? Have you ever heard of those infamous home equity lines of credit, also known as HELOCs? Which is basically a line of credit against the equity in your home. However, if you don't pay it back before you sell the home, the proceeds from the sale have to cover what's outstanding, which makes sense, right? It's pretty logical. But if your home is an investment, why do you have to borrow your own money and pay interest on it? Wait, what if when you sell, your home is no longer worth what it was when you took out the home equity line of credit, right? Or what if your equity altogether is gone, right? And now your home value is worth less than you own. That's a pretty precarious scenario, wouldn't you say? What about the family that really has a great business idea and they use a HELOC to fund it? What if that really good business idea isn't a great business idea after all? And now you can't afford to pay your mortgage or your line of credit on the house. And now your family livelihood is at stake. What about little Mike's college education that you really can't afford and you take out a loan for that? What about a major medical expense? You see how the slope can get mighty slippery with these things, right? Because if you're having to take out money, lines of credit for these things that you already can't afford through cash flow. Now you can see, now you should be able to see how bad these my home is an investment scenarios can really get. In fact, HELOC abuse was actually cited as the cause of the subprime mortgage crisis. Most people don't have the risk tolerance to play this game. The average American lives paycheck to paycheck. That's just facts. So they have no business owning a home. The median income in America is $53,000. The reason why the housing market crashed in 2008 is because people who were unqualified were allowed to buy homes. And the truth is, people are still unqualified. You see offers for little to no money down programs for first-time home buyers, right? But a home is usually a multi-six-figure purchase. If you can't afford to put money down, that should be a clear indicator that you probably can't afford it. Right? If you're having to scramble to get this money together to put it down, it means you probably just can't afford it, right? The writing is already on the wall. You just got to read it. People who own homes are generally perceived to be doing better than those who rent only because the perception of what success currently looks like. Neither one of them actually know what they're doing. One is just in a slightly better position because they had to get the credit score together in order to buy the home. But nowadays, you can pay somebody for a credit program to wipe off your bad debt. And, it look, and now you have a 720 um, and you can get a home. That doesn't make you qualify for it. Whereas the renter, right, maybe, you know, they, they haven't fixed their credit yet. And now they, they can't buy a home, right? So they haven't bought into the trap yet, which for them could be a good thing, could be a blessing in disguise. You might, you might find where the median household income for someone who actually owns a home versus someone who rents may be higher, right? So you may, you may believe that they're doing better financially. But the truth is those who make more have access to credit but don't know what they're doing potentially are the ones who will have bigger problems in the future because instead of pocketing the difference of how much money they're making more than the average American, they choose to live at the level of their income and more likely they're over leveraged. So in the event of financial hardship, they would have more expenses to cover, but would have no extra money to handle it. 
People with the most possessions tend to be the most stressed because they have more to lose, which ultimately keeps them stuck on the hamster wheel and rooted in their current state, unable to take advantage of opportunities that may be more fulfilling because they have acquired too much lifestyle. Your perceived needs might be causing you more harm than your wants. The key word there is perceived needs. Most people perceive that they need things that they really don't need, and it's causing them a lot of undue stress. There's a big difference in affordability and the cost of ownership. Your monthly payment for a house could indeed be lower than renting. You may save a few hundred bucks on your monthly payment, or at least you can justify if your payment is higher in your new home because you, well, own it. People commonly make the argument that in homeownership, the costs are controlled versus rent. The cost goes up year over year. The truth is, I was once told that either you pay for something up front or you pay for it on the back end. I'm pretty sure we've all heard that before. In an apartment, it is true that in many instances, your rent could be more than your monthly payment if you owned a home. However, here are the things that no one factors in on the front end, but inevitably are going to happen at some point on the back end. What happens when the water heater goes out or the AC unit or the refrigerator or the washer or the dryer? Sometimes they don't even break down before people decide to upgrade to something newer. Or maybe you want that smart refrigerator that you can see what's on the inside of it when you're not even home. First world problems. Or you want that washer, that washer and dryer that has 13 settings that you don't really need. Or you want that new grill with all the bells and whistles and the smoker to show off to your neighbors at the next, next cookout. And don't forget that Bill down the street just hooked up his backyard and you can't be outdone. You will not be outdone. <laughs> so you're going to go to Lowe's and you're going to get your patio furniture so your backyard can be lit too. Let me paint this picture for you. It's been about 10 years and one of a few things have happened, right? There's some major repair that needs to be done in your home. Something has ran its life cycle and it's time to buy a new one. Or your wife is tired of looking at the same old cabinets in the kitchen and it's time to remodel them. Or maybe she just saw one too many episodes of Fixer Upper. You know, white cabinets are in style now. And y'all have those oak colored ones that are totally out of season. Oh my gosh. So what do you do? You're living paycheck to paycheck, remember? So either you put it on your credit card or maybe you use a home equity line of credit that I discussed earlier. And let's face it, people just like new stuff. You're far more likely to buy a lot more things you don't need to make your house feel like a home and fill up all the extra space that you have in your house. And since you own it, you spend a lot more money on changing things over time unrelated to mandatory maintenance you'll have to make anyway. Right? So we didn't even factor in these cosmetic changes when I was going through the numbers earlier. What do you do when you live in an apartment and the washer, dryer, dishwasher, refrigerator breaks? You pick up the phone and you call the maintenance man. And you most certainly don't spend nearly as much on furnishings and decor because you know you're not going to be there forever. Most people don't realize it, but what they've really done when they rent is they've transferred the risk to the apartment complex. And for that, they're willing to pay a little bit more. Now, people don't do that intentionally, but that's essentially what they're doing. In the world of insurance, we would call that a transfer of risk. What's the insurance payment called that you pay for your car? It's called a premium. What's the definition of premium? A sum added to an ordinary price or charge. 
Sounds about right to me. Given the state of affairs of the average American, again, everybody listening might not be the average American. You might have six months worth of living expenses saved. You might be on track for retirement or whatever that looks like. You might be living your ideal lifestyle. And if that's the case, then this isn't applicable to you. But I know the numbers and I've seen a lot of people doing this day in and day out who this does apply to. Whether they want to admit it, whether they want to admit it or not, you see people on Facebook posting, "I'm so blessed," when they just got their new Mercedes and they got their new home. And God probably looking at y'all like, "I ain't had nothing to do with that," because then you're gonna be asking me for a miracle when you can't make your house payment, right? It's not a blessing; it's a burden. It's a prison. When are you gonna get that through your head? When you're a renter and the appliance breaks down, it doesn't even matter. You just call somebody. But when you're an owner, you could, and you could be broke, right? But because you rent it, now that risk has been transferred, so at least you don't have to worry about fixing something. But when you're a homeowner and your house poor and then your uh, doggone refrigerator breaks, oh my gosh, it's an emergency. Where are you going to get the money to pay for that? Can you afford a new refrigerator? Absolutely not. It's a sign that more debt is on the way. Truth be told, owning a home is really more about people's egos than it is about anything else. This is my house. My yard, my pool, my bonus room, my pool table. Don't you typically have access to all that stuff in a pretty nice apartment complex? Hmm. But no, you don't own it, so it's not the same. You're throwing money down the drain when you rent. I'm sure we've all heard that one before, right? From who? Our wildly successful elders? Hmm. Others in the middle class fight with us? Like I mentioned earlier, people like new stuff. So at least when you're in an apartment complex and the pool table gets a little dingy or old, you can complain about it and get them to fix, replace a new one. Or at the very least, when your lease is up, you can move out and go to the new swanky apartment with the better amenities. When you think about it, no one truly cares about owning anything as it relates to consumption items, right? Certain things it does make sense to own. But when it comes to things you consume, no one really cares about owning the material possessions. They care about the experience associated with having access to them. If you must, I would much rather you have experienced the perceived luxuries and get it out your system versus having to deal with the cost of ownership. Do you know how much it would cost me to have, the, to have the pool I have now, to have the pool table that I have in my building, to have the entertainment space that I have, the grill, like all the stuff that I have in this apartment building that I live in? That's a... You know how much upkeep it would cost me to do that? Or how much it would cost me to pay for that on the front end? A ridiculous amount of money. And who wants to keep up with all that? Not me. Not me at all. Just to say that it's mine, but I don't mind having access to it because that's all that really matters. And plus, I know over time, my taste is going to change. And at some point down the road, I'm not even going to want that pool table. The, the, the key takeaway to this is self-awareness, right? Like if you were the guy or girl, right, that would really buy that house and live in it for 30 years, pay it off and stay in it, then yeah, right? And if that's really you, then this, this, this scenario works. Or if you're that guy or girl who's going to buy that car, right, ride it till the wheels fall off, fix it up, ride it some more, then yeah. Maybe what I'm talking about applies to you. But the, the, the truth is, for most people, 
right? That's just not the case. They're going to justify making the expense off of a philosophy that they're not even going to abide by. Well, I can buy this house and one day I'm not going to have a payment on it. I'm going to live. No. In three or four years, you're going to upgrade. Five years, you're going to upgrade. Six years, you're going to upgrade. All right. Same thing with your car. Right. So you're you're doing things that you think you would do in your mind, but you aren't actually executing on those things in real life. And that is what's causing the disconnect in your lifestyle. You're telling yourself one thing mentally, but your actions don't align. The key here with this, with all of this is self-awareness. Know yourself, right? And if you know yourself, you can easily see that you're on track for financial disaster going the route that you're going now. If you want to own anything, you know what it should be? Business or real investments. Things that actually pay you instead of things you constantly have to pay for. If that's not the simplest definition of an investment, I don't know what is. An investment should be something that I invest in on the front end and then it pays me, right? A business, I invest my time, my money, my whatever, and now I've created something that is paying me. If you gotta keep feeding the machine, it's a liability, folks. It's not an investment. You ever see someone with a BMW with a spare tire on it for several weeks because they can't afford a new tire? <laughs> well, they thought because they could afford the monthly payment that they could afford all that comes with it. And if you end up paying more for it than you get out of it in return, it's simply a bad deal, folks. They can stretch car payments out as long as 72 months just so you can afford it. Again, it goes back to that self-awareness. You think owning a car is better than leasing because you tell yourself, you, I'll probably pay this off one day. But then you don't. And in a few years, it's either giving you problems or more likely you just want something new. Oh, and spoiler alert, it's worth less than when you got it. So now what? You roll the negative equity into another car. And then they tell you, well, once we roll the negative equity into this car, you'll get this one paid off, you'll be done with it. But then guess what? You don't pay off that car and the cycle keeps going. And then your payment becomes higher and higher and higher. And you never get out of the deal. And people keep falling for it. That's what's blowing me. Right? So you say, oh, well, leasing is dumb because you don't own it. Well, what happens when you bought that car that you own that you never paid off? And now you got negative equity that you're putting into another car. Self-awareness, folks. Understand the map. Understand the game. You, you, people are playing a new game by old rules. And that's why everybody's broke. Why do you think a mortgage or a 30-year mortgage is the most common one? They stretch it out as far as they can so you can afford it. Does paying for anything for 30 years make any kind of sense? Name one thing in your house right now you still care about after two or three years, much less 30. So much can happen in a year. Conversely, if you have plenty of money in the bank and you found a place that you feel like you want to settle into, sure, if that's what you want to do, go for it. But even if you do have the uh, plenty of money, you have the cash to pay for it, I still don't think, you know, home ownership is the best thing. But hey, if you're in the financial position to do so, then by all means, that's your prerogative. My issue is with people who don't have the means, right? You're barely making it now. But just because you want to get a house because that's what the American dream looks like or someone convinced you that that's a good investment, you go out and do it. But what about renting? 
Isn't that just throwing money away? Well, I think we've already addressed that you really aren't gaining anything financially by owning. You're either borrowing a place to live or you're borrowing money. You don't own it in either scenario. Try missing a few tax payments on your house after it's paid off after 30 years. Then tell me how much you own it. You may get some extra space. You may get some intangible benefits that may be better suited for where you are in life today. But they both have their pros and cons. When you rent, you don't have to put any money down besides a security deposit, which is a marginal cost at best. And sometimes you don't even have a security deposit if your credit is decent. Then you have the ability to reassess your life every 6 to 12 months to determine if it still makes sense to live the way you're living or if you should recalibrate. You have the mobility to be able to capitalize on opportunities without having to factor in the decision of what to do with your home. And you're also free from the emotional attachment that will play into the decision if you have to put roots down where you live. You don't have to worry about the risk of not being able to move because the market is bad and you can't sell your house. But I need a place to raise my family that they can call home. Listen, the best thing you can do for your child or your spouse is put yourself in a financial position to offer them a life worth living. Your kid will thank you a lot more for that in the long run than being in a neighborhood so that they can have a place to call home. But they always hear mommy and daddy stressing about money. Okay? I know this is hard to listen to. Right. You either own a home or you want a home based on what society has told you as a marker of success. That dream home. Right. Just two months ago, I wanted to buy a house, too. I told you we're about to put our house in the market. We just knew we were going to upgrade to a four or five bedroom house, a bonus room, maybe even a basement with plenty of space to host our friends. But when, when I was being objective, I realized buying a home right now just didn't make any sense. Even though in a, in a financial sense, my wife and I were in the position to do so. We aren't living check to check. We have enough cash stacked up in the bank for a rainy day. Side note, why do they say save money for a rainy day? Right? No one spends money in the rain. They stay at home. Anyways, this decision was hard for us emotionally, right? Because that was the next thing on the list, right? We're, we're married now. Just had our two-year two anniversary uh, yesterday, yesterday, actually. Um, you know, now it's time to settle in. At least that's what society wants us to think, right? How are we going to look going from a house to an apartment? Who cares? Show emotion and be in touch with your relationships, and your friends and family. That, that's what makes you human. Be objective about your financial decisions, right? If it makes sense, cool. If it doesn't, do what's right. Be objective, right, when it comes to your financial decisions. And I knew that at this stage in my life, it was more important to be mobile than to start settling into a middle-class lifestyle that I honestly want no parts of. And again, this way of thinking isn't for everyone. Some people really desire to live in you know, one area their whole life, build a family, and live a traditional modest life. If that's not what you want, then you got to do things differently, right? And sure, when you really make it, you can buy a house and a car, you know, the dream house you want or the dream car you want, even though it's, a, it's still a bad investment. But guess what? Now you have the financial wherewithal to where it doesn't matter. If that's what you really desire to do. But when you're on the journey to get there, you got to have a different approach. Or you're going to look up 20, 30 years from now. You're going to be stuck on the hamster wheel. And you can't get off because you've acquired too much lifestyle. Right. And now you can't get to where you really want to be because of the decisions you made in the past.
Now, really quickly, I'm not going to dive deep here because uh, we, we've, we've talked a lot about why a home is not an investment, but I do want to touch on briefly uh, what is real estate investing, right? Let's go back to those three points that I mentioned earlier in the show. You must factor everything you put into an investment to be able to determine the return on investment, right? So if you want the most return on your investment, you need to put the least amount of money into it. Well, how do you do that? You don't live in it, dude. Have someone else pay down the debt. So that means you will want to buy property that other people are renting from you. Make sense? Number two, to protect against risk, an investment should be well diversified. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. A single family home is either 100% occupied or zero. That's not smart. It's not a smart investment. A smarter investment would be to have a multifamily building, right? Like an IE, an apartment building, where you can have, let's say, 16 tenants. So if four units were vacant, you're still 75% occupied. You got 16 people paying you instead of one. You might be saying, well, how can I afford a whole apartment building? Well, maybe you can't. Maybe you pool your resources with other investors. Or maybe you sit on the sidelines and you save and stack some more money and just realize that, okay, maybe this game isn't for me just yet until, I, you know, until I'm ready for it, right? Um, but you got to be real with yourself because if you get in a game that you're not ready to play, you're going to lose, man. That's just the way it is. You must factor in both potential upside and downside to decide if the investment is right for you. Yes, you could buy a home for 150 grand in an area that completely transforms over the next several years. You cash out in a major way, bada bing, bada boom. Best case scenario, right? Or you could buy a house at the peak of the market. The market goes down dramatically. Your house could now be worth less than what you owe on it. You could have a plethora of maintenance problems, etc. Right now, if you can afford that risk, then go for it. But don't be naive and think that you will only see the upside. So again, a house is not a good investment for the average American. For the average American, it is a prison. If you're living relatively paycheck to paycheck, right? Meaning that if you miss one, you can't pay your bills, right? Or if you miss two, you can't pay your bills then owning a home just doesn't make sense because when the inevitabilities of things come up that you don't have the money to pay for, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have to put it on credit. You're going to have to go in debt. You're going to start thinking crazy, trying to get home equity lines of credit. We already talked about how that can go south. All types of stuff that doesn't make sense for where you are. But I think the biggest takeaway is not the math. The biggest takeaway is that when you're on a journey to create the life that you want to create, you need to be mobile and agile to be able to seize those opportunities. And settling in should not be in your vocabulary. But that is in the vocabulary of the American dream. The old, outdated American dream. The game has changed. Again, I mentioned this is only one of the components of how people are playing a new game by old rules that I actually talk about in depth in my new book that will be releasing next year. Right, But this is a major one because I see so many people striving for Something that is not in alignment with, with the lifestyle that they ultimately say they want. Simply because they're still benchmarking their success off of societal norms that um, are no longer a good measure of success. So 
again, I know this podcast may be a little hard for some people to swallow. If buying a home was was your goal or still is your goal. And again, I'm not saying that you can't ever buy a home. I'm going to buy a home at some point again, just not today. Not as I'm trying to take my life to the next level. That does not mean I don't own real estate, right? I'm working on some real estate deals right now as we speak. So it does not mean that. It just means that I personally will probably not be living in a home anytime soon, right? And if I do, it might be because I had a lifestyle change. And if I do, it's because I can't afford it now. And if I decide to, I'll, I'll do it. But I'm trying to help the people that I see who are hurting and suffering unnecessarily by making decisions that they think are going to benefit them, but they actually harm them. I hope this perspective was good for you. Um, again, it's probably not one that you heard of, probably not one that you were expecting. But hey, as they always say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and expecting different results. So you want different, you got to do different. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Legacy and Lifestyle Show with your host, George Achenpong, where you'll learn how to live the life you want today while planning for the legacy you want to leave tomorrow. Purpose, passion, and profit makes sense to me.